If you get our emails during the week, you know that chapter 23 is actually a little bit of a change in direction from what we had originally planned to cover. Um, To be honest, I had originally planned to summarize Genesis 23 in my introduction to Genesis 24. Because on my initial reading, I thought, well, the main things that happen in Genesis 23 is that Sarah dies, Abraham buys some land, and he buries his wife. That's simple. There's not a lot going on there. We can cover that in the introduction and then focus on chapter 24, which seems to be, at first glance, much more significant to the story and the trajectory of Abraham's life and the outworking of God's covenant promises. But I did something this week that is a first for me, which is pivoted last minute and changed my mind, and I think that 23 deserves all our attention this morning. Um, I have to um, acknowledge up front this morning that many of my thoughts this morning are largely shaped uh, by the insights of R. Kent Hughes, who's a pastor and scholar who has a fantastic uh, commentary on Genesis that um, on some weeks has served me very well in, in this study. And so much of what I will share with you this morning has been prompted by some of his insights Uh, But I think that there's something that we need to see here this morning in chapter 23. And so I want to give us time uh, to pay attention to it. So you may not have read through it this morning as carefully as you did chapter 24 this past week. But I trust that you will benefit as I have from giving some time to look into God's word. You know, the Apostle Paul writes to us uh, in his epistle, his letter uh, to Timothy that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and that all of it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And I think that we can be instructed this morning by this simple, what appears to be a simple historical anecdote of how Sarah died and was buried. I think there's something here for us. You know, there are powerful moments in our lives that all of us uh, experience, moments that shape us, Moments that form major mile markers in the journey of life. Some of these moments are moments of great joy. Uh, Moments like uh, our salvation, your wedding day, the birth of child. Some of the moments that shape us, moments that form major mile markers on the road of life are actually moments that are filled with grief. Times of suffering, times of disappointment, times of loss. And one of the most difficult moments that any of us will deal with is the loss, the death of a loved one. And that's exactly what Abraham faces in Genesis 23. His wife, Sarah, one of the most famous women in all of the Bible, reaches the end of her life and she dies. But even in this time of grief and loss, we see Abraham's faith on display. And I think there's instruction for us here. Uh, The setting for this story is really in the first couple verses as we see the death of Sarah and Abraham's grief, Genesis 23, starting in verse 1. Moses tells us, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. This is the end of Sarah's life And it's not just the end of her life, it's really the end of her journey of faith. You see, as we've been going through this story, the life of Abraham and his family and all the ups and downs, Abraham is not the only one who has faith. She, Sarah, left with him to go to Canaan. You remember back in chapter 12, what did God tell him? He said, I want you to go from your country, your kindred, your home to a land I will show you. And Sarah was along for the ride. She had faith as well. She was there for all the ups and for all the downs. And now her journey is finished. And she died in faith, 
looking forward to the promise of a great nation that would come through her son Isaac, looking forward to the promised blessing of possessing this land, Canaan, and looking forward to the promise of blessing for the world that would come through her descendants. Although she was in no way perfect, her faith was real and significant. And it was significant not just for her and her own life, but it was significant for the nation Israel that would come through her womb. Listen to what Hebrews 11.11 says. It says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah died in faith. And Abraham grieves. He weeps for her. It says, kind of maybe a strange sentence to our ears, it says, he went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. It doesn't just say that he cried or that he mourned. He, he goes in, and you have to remember, their culture is different than ours. In our culture and society, death is often hidden and out of view. And even our funerals and our memorial services, it's sanitized in a way. In other cultures, it's not like this. Um, I was down in, in Mexico years ago, uh, spending time with the Warrens, and while we were there, someone died. And this person was one of the first people to come to faith in Christ, in their ministry at Mochikawe. And this person was very old. I can't remember if they were quite 100 years old. They might have been 100, but they were very, very old. And this person died, a believer, and the whole family gathered at their home for several days. People sat around outside and cried, and people would literally go in to where the body was, like it says here with Abraham, and sit there next to this dead body and mourn. And they were believers, and they were rejoicing in the faith of this deceased saint, but they were present there with the body mourning the loss of someone that they loved, someone who had been a pillar in their community of faith, one of the foundation stones of the church there in Mochikawi. That's what Abraham does here. It was a hot, arid climate, kind of like Mexico, not like here. And they would actually sit there with the body for a period of days before the embalming and burying process would happen. And that's what's happening here. Abraham grieves. You have to remember, this is the end of a 100-year marriage. That's a long time. That's a long time. And as as Abraham kneels there, he's, he's mourning the loss of his princess. Sarah, that's what the name Sarah means. And as he knelt beside her bedside, I'm sure that he could still see through the tired wrinkles and the aging features, the traces of beauty for which Sarah had been so famous. I mean, even in her old age, she was renowned for her beauty. And I'm sure that in Abraham's eyes, she would always be beautiful. I'm sure he remembered all the things that they had been through together, leaving home. Remembering the time when he first told her, God spoke to me and said, we need to leave. We need to go. I don't know where we're going. I don't know how long it'll take to get there. No, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm sure, like many wives, she had questions for her husband's plans. But I'm sure he remembered those conversations. I'm sure that he remembered their journey to Egypt the time where he compromised and passed her off as his sister, the times he nearly lost her. It happened again with Abimelech. I'm sure he remembered the 90 long years of the aching emptiness of having no child. She was barren for most of her life. Those years of waiting for a son, I'm sure he remembered their laughter together as God promised them a son, and they both said, really, us have a son in our old age? I'm sure he remembered their joy and celebration when Isaac was born, and the great feast when he was weaned. And in all of this, I'm sure that Abraham, as he knelt at her bedside, remembered God's faithfulness every step of the way. They had walked this journey of faith together, and now Sarah's race was finished. 
Now Abraham must continue on without her because his journey is not yet complete. But before he continues on in his life, before he puts all this behind, her, behind him, he has to act. And that action includes taking care of some logistics. He must bury his bride. Now remember, Abraham is a sojourner. He is a foreigner who resides in Canaan, but he's a wanderer. And he gets permission from different people to graze, but he owns no land except for one well of water. And typically, loved ones were buried on your own personal property. It's not like we do where we go and have a burial plot in a common cemetery. It was private property because it was considered sacred to the family. And that burial site was not just a spot for one person. It was typically a family burial site. Abraham needed a place not only to lay the bones of his bride, Sarah, but a place for him to be buried and for Isaac and for his descendants. So this was a massively important thing to locate and secure a burial site. It's a big deal for for his family and, and culturally in that society it mattered. He needs a place and this is not a small decision. It's not a small decision because he wanted to honor his wife. Not just any old place would do. But it was also an important decision Because he wanted to ensure that she would be honored for generations to come. That her graveside would not be in some forsaken, lost, out-of-the-way place. It would be somewhere significant where it could be remembered and honored in the years to come. So Abraham's actions, what comes next, although seemingly insignificant, it really sets a model of faith for our lives as we look to our future. Because you know what lifts Abraham to his feet as he's mourning? beside her bedside. You know what moves him forward to take the next step? It's faith in the promise. This theme that we see time and time again in Abraham's life, it's his faith in God's promises that moves him to action, to obedience. So he makes a move to purchase land and bury his bride. It's motivated by faith. We see his challenge Really, this is most of the chapter, verses 3 through 18, working out the details. He has to secure a burial place for the recipients of the promise. That is his aim. And the solution is that he goes to purchase land in the land of promise, in the land of Canaan. We see this in verse 3. It says, Abraham rose up from before his dead, and he said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He desired to bury Sarah specifically in the land of promise, in Canaan. He wanted to stake his claim in the land, a land that was not yet theirs, but he believed it one day would be. His faith in the future informed his actions in the present. Abraham goes to put his money where his mouth is. He believes they will inherit this land. He believes it will be theirs to possess, and so he invests. He's ready to spend some money. And to make a big commitment. He was willing to lay the bones of the person he loved with all his heart here in the land of Canaan. Because he believed it would one day be theirs. Though the possession of the land is yet far off, Abraham wants her bones and his to be waiting for the people of Israel when they finally take possession of it. So he takes the steps to seek to purchase property. We see the negotiations here in verses 3 through 18. We can kind of walk through it. He goes to the Hittites And he asks them, he says, give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Verse 5, the Hittites answer Abraham. And they said, hear us, my Lord. 
You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham acknowledges, he says, listen, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner. He says, you know that I don't own any land here. I'm here by your hospitality. You've allowed me to dwell among you, but I have no rights to the land. I have no claim to a place of my own, and I'm asking you for property. And at first glance, their response seems very gracious. You know, they answer him and said, you're more than a sojourner, Abraham. You're more than just some foreigner. You are a prince of God among us. They knew he was blessed by God, and they knew he was powerful. They knew he had wealth, and they acknowledge that, and they honor him as such. But if you notice, their offer is not to give him property to purchase. They, in, in essence, say, well, they, let's look at what they say word for word. They say, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham says, I need land. And they say, you can use any of our land. They don't exactly offer him ownership. They offer him usage. You have to understand that land was a generational thing. The land that they possessed was to be given to their descendants. And this was Hittite land. And they weren't just ready to part with it to give it to some foreigner. So at first glance, it may seem very generous and gracious. Oh, you can have access to anything you want, but they're in essence saying, you can use my car, not you can have my car. Or you can borrow my car, not you can buy my car. And there's a difference. Because if you use something or borrow it, the other person may need it back at some point. If you use something or borrow it, you owe the other person. There's an obligation. It's not really yours. And that's not really what Abraham is after. So he, he responds to them in verse 7. You have to understand, they are all sitting in the gate. That's where these elders would have been gathered. At the gate of the city is where all the business transactions takes place. And, and Abraham is there with them. And notice how his posture changes, verse 7. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. This is their land, remember, for now. And he says to them, here, here he makes his pitch. He raises, he bows to them. He's about to make a big request, and his posture acknowledges that. He says, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of your sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a buying place. What does Abraham ask for? He says, listen, I'm asking permission from all of you to buy from one of you. Because for land to be transferred from the Hittite clan to someone outside the Hittite clan, that may need more than just the personal permission of the landowner. He, might, he may need the blessing of the whole community. And so he asks for that. He asks all of them. He says, listen, ask Ephron specifically if I can purchase from him land. I want this to be a legal transaction where full ownership of the land is transferred for me to me. And I acknowledge that may mean that the whole body of elders of the Hittites has to give the thumbs up for this transaction, but this is what I'm after. I want to buy this specific piece of property, property, and name your price. Name your price. Verse 10. Here's the negotiations, the back and forth. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, all of who went in at the gate of his city. Everybody's there. And he says this in front of everyone. He says, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it, in the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. 
So again, at first glance, this seems to be very gracious. Wow. Name your price, and he says, I'll give it to you. But again, there's more going on here. We have to understand, remember the hospitality customs of these cultures. This very well may be that part of their negotiations was not to name a price right up front. You know, it's kind of like if you have a friend who's talking to you, and they want to buy something, you go, oh, just let me give it to you. But maybe, you know, they really don't want you, but it's the polite and proper thing to say. That's kind of what's going on here. And he says, I know you need a cave, you know, a place to store the bones, to lay the bones. I'll give you the whole field. I'll give it to you. But again, there may be something shrewd going on here as well, because if it's given to Abraham and there's no legal transaction, he may be indicating you can have this for your lifetime, but what about the next generation? Abraham wants to ensure that this land would be possessed by his descendants when he's long dead and gone. So Abraham pushes forward. He's not just looking to use the land, and he wants to make sure that nobody can ever dispute his claim to the land. So Abraham gives the counter offer. Verse 12, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, all this emphasis that this is happening in everybody's ears, there's witnesses, this is on the up and up, there's nothing underhanded, this is not some you know, handshake deal behind closed doors, this is in public, in front of everyone. Abraham says, verse 13, but if you will hear me, here's the counter, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. He says, no, listen, I want to buy it from you, and I want you to name the price, and I want this to be done before everyone. Ephron, verse 14, answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Now we have the price that's finally been thrown out. It's like, well, if you were going to buy it, it would probably be 400 shekels. But, but I, I'm not asking that. What is that between you and me? Again, here's the hospitality, the courtesy. You know, well, if I was going to sell it, I'd probably get this much out of it. But I'm not asking you for that. But he has thrown a number out. And I'm expecting that he probably thinks Abraham is going to counteroffer, right? Now you get to the haggling. Well, could you do 300? Well, I'll meet you in the middle. You know, now begins the haggling. But Abraham doesn't haggle with him. He's thrown out this, this price. And 400 shekels, a shekel is not a, a monetary unit at this point. It would become that later. At this point, he's referring to a weight measurement. And he's talking about over six pounds of silver. It's a big price. It's a high price. Perhaps even exorbitant. Maybe he's even taking advantage of Abraham. We're not sure. We don't know the exact economy. We don't know how big the field was. We do know that there was a bunch of trees on it, which were valuable. But he throws out a substantial price. And Abraham doesn't counter. Verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. He pays full price. He doesn't haggle. He doesn't negotiate. 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. And it happens before the eyes and, and this, these statements are made in the ears of everyone who mattered in the Hittite culture. This is a legal, fair, and well-known transaction that was documented according to the customs of the day. And the full price was paid. The purchase price ensured there, there would be no dispute in the future. And I think it also shows that Abraham cares for his bride 400 shekels, nothing's too expensive for my beloved. I'll definitely pay that in her honor. Abraham has demonstrated faith as well here. He's demonstrating faith. He believes the land will be theirs, and he's willing to put his money where his mouth is. 
400 shekels of silver for a bearing place for his bride. He's, his faith in the future is demonstrated as he makes an investment in the present. And that leads us to the conclusion of the, of the brief narrative here, the burial in Hebron. And a forward-pointing place of promise. The place here is significant. It says in verse 17, So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which is to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, it was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. It's done. It's been purchased. His wife has been laid to rest, and she's not been laid to rest just anywhere. Abraham now possesses land in the promised land of Canaan. And Abraham has put a down payment on the promise. He's made a purchase fueled by faith that God would give them this land as their possession. Abraham has made his mark on this land many times before. We've seen this throughout his life that when significant things have happened, he has built altars. He's planted terebinth trees. And I really see this, the purchase of this field and the burial of Sarah, in a sense, this is sort of the last altar that Abraham builds. This cave itself would be a monument to the covenant promise for generations to come and a testimony to the faith of their fathers. Our fathers purchased this land knowing that God would one day give it to us. Our fathers believed in that promise and their bones are there as a perpetual reminder that this is what God has promised and this is what our fathers were trusting in. Isn't that a beautiful thing to, to think that every generation to come would look to that field and that cave as a reminder of God's promise and Abraham's faith in the future fulfillment of that promise. It's a monument to that. Even death did not dampen their confident expectation. Yes, Sarah has died. Yes, they've had a son, Isaac. But, and yes, he owns a well and they're in the land, but there's so much of the promise that is still future. But Abraham believes. He believes. Even death could not dampen his confident expectation. I don't know if you noticed this as we're reading through it, but the narrator Moses emphasizes for us just to make sure we realize that Abraham buried her in the land of Canaan, near Mamre, at Hebron, this specific field, this cave, and it's in the land of Canaan, as if we didn't already know where we are, right? He keeps emphasizing that because that's what matters. This is a key component of God's promise to them, and this is featured here in this chapter for us. Now, this place, Hebron, that we've mentioned, and the cave that was there, this features heavily not only in this chapter, but in many of the stories that follow. As history unfolds, we see this cave and this field referred to time and time again. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to focus on this this morning, because this place, Hebron, holds significance for the people of God. Again, it is a monument to their covenant expectations. We see it pop up again and again and again. Abraham buries his wife Sarah here at Hebron in this cave in chapter 23. But later we get to chapter 25 and we see that Abraham will die. And his son Isaac will lay his bones here, right next to Sarah, in this cave, in Hebron, in the promised land. The land that had been promised to them. Later in chapter 49, Jacob will bury his father Isaac here. 
with his parents in the cave in Hebron, in the promised land. We see that Jacob charges his sons while in Egypt to bury him here. You remember, Joseph goes to Egypt, and because of famine, all of Abraham's descendants end up there. Jacob tells his sons, do not bury me here in Egypt. Put my bones in the cave with my father and my grandfather and grandmother in the cave in Hebron, in the promised land. That's where we belong, and that's where I want my bones to be laid. He makes his sons promised to bury him here and later as Jacob dies in chapter 50 they embalm him at his death and they make the long journey and bring him here and they lay his bones in this cave later Joseph as he grows old will make the sons of Israel swear to embalm him and to carry his bones from Egypt when they leave because he knows that one day they will return to the land of promise and that's where he belongs that's where his people belong and this is actually how Genesis ends if you go all the way to Genesis chapter 50 the very last words of Genesis tell us that, that Joseph's bones are prepared to one day leave Egypt. And he was not buried permanently there. Genesis ends with a forward-looking expectation of possessing the land of Canaan. We see it later in the book of Exodus, 430 years later, as Moses and the children of Israel told by Pharaoh, go, take your wives and your children and your flocks and your herds and go. You know what they do? They take up with them the bones of Joseph. And as they leave Egypt, as they cross through the Red Sea, as they wander for 40 years in the wilderness, they take the bones of their ancestor Joseph with them, carrying not only his remains, but the expectation of the fulfillment of God's promise in the future to give them this land. Later, when Joshua conquers Canaan, they lay the bones of Joseph here in Hebron, Joshua chapter 24. Again and again and again, we keep seeing this place lifted up as a monument and a symbol of their expectation to inherit the land. We see later in Joshua chapter 14 that one of the spies who believed this promise, you remember there were 12 spies, and 10 of them said, there's too many people, and they're too strong, and they're too big, we can't take it. There was two spies, Joshua and Caleb, and they said, we can take it. Sure, we're small and we're few, but God has promised to give us this land. They believe this promise. And Caleb, years later, as an old man, he is the one who actually conquers Hebron and takes it to be fully possessed by the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. One day, years later, there would be someone who had grown up as a shepherd who was now 30 years old. His name was David. And he would be anointed to be king over Israel, the people of promise. And he would be anointed at Hebron, at this very place. He and his son Solomon, under their reigns, under their reign, the land of Canaan would be possessed at its greatest extent. The borders were never greater to the nation Israel than under the reign of David and his son Solomon. We see this again and again and again, this place popping up. You know, Abraham did not live to see all this come to pass. He never saw this, but he believed it would happen. He believed it enough to invest, to put his money where his mouth was, and to lay the bones of his precious bride here because he believed that this land would be theirs. His confidence in the future fulfillment of God's promises compelled him to walk by faith in the present. That's really what he's doing here in Genesis 23. He's walking by faith. He's purchasing land, bearing his bride, all the while looking forward to the future 
looking to the future that God has promised. But you know, we have to ask, is that all that Abraham was believing? Because if we go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews tells us more. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, because I think this is exciting. Hebrews chapter 11. A big chunk of Hebrews 11 recounts the faith of Abraham and Sarah. It starts in verse 8, and it goes all the way through, um, really, verse 17, 18. But I just want to pick up in verse 13. In verse 13, it says, These all, referring to Abraham and Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And the author of Hebrews now clarifies what he means by that. He says, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What the author of Hebrews tells us is that, yes, Abraham and Sarah looked forward to receiving the land of Canaan, but Abraham is even looking beyond that, even looking to something more lasting, something greater, something more real than even Hebron and the land of Canaan, the surrounding region. Abraham was looking beyond all that to an eternal inheritance. You see, as Abraham tells the Hittites that day, I am but a sojourner and a foreigner, I think he means that in more ways than one. He saw himself as a sojourner who was destined not just to one day have his bones laid in the land of Canaan, but who was one day destined to an even greater inheritance. And this holds great significance for us too. You see, Abraham had an eternal perspective. He had a big picture view that took into account the past, what God had promised him, the present, what he must do in the now, and the future, what God was planning to do. That was his perspective. And it's a perspective that we need to share because we too are sojourners. God has promised us much, but we've only received part at this point in history. This world, as it is now, is not our home, is it? Aren't you thankful for that? We are, as the old song says, just a passing through, in a sense. We are looking to the future fulfillment of God's promises to us. And here's the point for us this morning. Confidence in the future fulfillment of God's promises is what compels us to walk by faith in the present. If you don't believe that God is going to fulfill his promises then, it's going to show up in what you do now. It's going to show up in how you spend your money, the decisions that you make, the priorities that drive you, your motives, your fears, your hopes, your plans, your dreams. It's all shaped by our faith in the future promise. Confidence in the future fulfillment of God's promises compels us to walk by faith in the present. I love what Paul says in Philippians 3.20. He gives us this perspective that we need. Philippians 3, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You see, God has promised to do things for us that haven't yet happened. I don't have to remind you that your body isn't glorified yet, do I? The fatigue some of you are feeling this morning, the aches, the pains, the problems that come with age and sickness and living in a broken world where we, where we get injured and we get ill, we know this. But what's the promise? The promise is that we're waiting for a Savior who's going to come again and transform our bodies to be like his. The promise is that we're going to inherit an eternal inheritance, a new heaven and a new earth where we will enjoy the presence of Jesus Christ with no more death, no more sickness, no more sadness, no more pain, no more suffering, no more war, no more news. All of that stuff's gonna be gone someday. Do you believe that? If you believe that, it's gonna shape how you live in the present. It's actually going to influence the decisions that you make tomorrow about the real life stuff that you have to deal with. So let me ask you, does this perspective that Paul shares in Philippians 3 citizenship in heaven and eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. The kind of faith that Abraham demonstrated in Hebrews chapter 23. He put his money where his mouth is. Does this perspective describe you? Does your faith in the future fulfillment of God's promises shape your life in the present? Is your perspective dominated by the reality of what is to come or are you focused only on the moment? Are you living only in the moment, for the moment? Is all you see this moment? Because it's the, if that's you, I, I hope what you can see this morning is that Scripture expands our perspective. Eyes of faith will see more than the moment. For those of us who are in Christ, we've been born again, as Peter describes it, to a living hope, meaning we are looking to something that is not yet fully received, not yet fully possessed, but we are confident in it, and it is alive in us. We've been promised resurrection, a glorious inheritance, eternal joy of life in God's presence. And this is not just supposed to be something that we know, not even just something that we believe. This truth of where we are going in the future and what God has promised us in Christ, this must be something that we are radically seeking and pursuing and focusing on. This is what we look to as we run the race of faith. I love what Colossians 3.1 says. It gives us this heavenly perspective. Paul says, if then you have been raised up with Christ, if you're united with him, if his death is your death, his resurrection is your resurrection, his life is your life. And in the Greek, it's almost since then you've been raised up with Christ. Paul says, if that's true, then here's how we must live. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Does that describe you? There's so many things to seek here in this earth. Financial security, health, relationships with people, and the affirmation or the satisfaction or the comfort we get from them. Success in your career, whether it be academically, professionally, athletically, whatever it is. There's so much that we can seek here in this earth. But first and foremost... We are to seek the things that are above. Paul continues, the things that are above where Christ is. He is our inheritance. He is our portion. 
He is our reward. Seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And he continues on. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He says, you are united with Christ. And he says, here's the perspective, looking forward. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is what's coming. This is what's promised. And since that is true, set your gaze on that. Seek that. Don't set your mind on things that are on the earth. Pastor Kent Hughes comments, longing for heaven is the signature of the believing soul. Does that describe you? Do you long for eternity and for the full reception of all of God's promises? 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Does this describe your perspective this morning? Do you believe in that future fulfillment of God's promise so much that it actually changes the way you live right now in the present. You see, rather than disconnect us from the present, this kind of a heavenly mindset, this kind of eternal focus and perspective, rather than disconnect us from the present, this actually motivates us to action in the present. Abraham does stuff. He spends money. He negotiates. He buries his wife. He's active in the present. He's not sitting there with his head in the clouds. He's doing things, but it's all driven by his faith in the future fulfillment of God's promises. If you believe in the future, if, you're, if your mind's set on things above, it doesn't disconnect you from the present. It motivates us to action in the present. It shapes our decisions. You know what it'll do? It'll encourage sacrifice and obedience and worship and mission. It'll encourage us in times of trial. It will sustain us in times of suffering. It will humble us in times of ease and comfort and worldly success. Looking to the future does not minimize the present. It infuses it with hope. And maybe that hope is what some of you need this morning. Confidence in the future fulfillment of God's promises compels us to walk by faith in the present. It infuses us with hope. Not so that we sit on our hands and wait around for God to do something. It actually compels us to action, to do things, to take steps of faith that to the world might not even always make sense, but it makes total sense to someone who sees and believes in the promise. For Abraham, the promises of God are partially fulfilled, but fully expected. He has a son, but he's expecting a great nation. He owns a well, and now a field, and a cave, but he's expecting to inherit the land. And it's that way for us as well. Our possession of what we have now in Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit, which is like a down payment of the future inheritance to come, that ought to strengthen our faith in what is coming to us in the future, the eventual fulfillment of all God's promises. So like Abraham, we can invest in the present. We can have an eternal perspective. Like Abraham, we can even face death with dignity, mourning but not without hope, honoring the body because God will raise it up, weeping for a time but not giving in to despair because we fully expect to see God's promises come to pass. This is why we can sing. As Henry Light once wrote in one of my all-time favorite hymns, 
Haste thee on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before thee. God's own hand shall guide us there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition, faith to sight, and prayer to praise. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. And my prayer for this church is that that truth would infuse us with hope and enable us to walk by faith day by day as we deal with all the ups and downs of life, all the challenges, the joys, the sorrows. When we are armed with this eternal perspective, it'll change us. It'll change us. Lord, we thank you for what you have recorded for us in your word. I'm ashamed to think that at my first glance, this looked like some historical information that tied up some loose ends. There is beautiful truth in these words. Lord, we know that you inspired and recorded and preserved them so that we could be encouraged this morning. I pray, God, that we would, like Abraham, look to the future fulfillment of your promises and be empowered to obey and to act and to trust in the present, that we would be infused with hope this morning. Lord, we thank you for the rich blessings. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. We thank you for that. And I pray that as we have now only tasted a portion of it, we would look forward to that day when the veil will be removed. We will see no longer in a glass dimly, but face to face. I pray that we would look forward to that day and that it would encourage us now in the present. Help us to hold on to these things. I pray that you would erect monuments in our lives, monuments to your promises and testimonies of faith that will even shape the generations to come. We praise you, God, for all you've given us in Christ, and we thank you for your word this morning. Amen. Amen.